0: Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. A group of Mexican-American chefs, journalists, and academics gathered in Houston last month to celebrate the indigenous roots of Texas Mexican cooking in South Texas and northern Mexico. To be clear, this is not Tex-Mex. This is Texas Mexican cooking, the kind of cooking that predated Tex-Mex, that predated Spanish colonization. The event was called Encuentro, or Encounter. Today, we're talking to three participants of Encuentro, San Antonio Chef Rebel Mariposa, owner of La Botanica, Dr. Liliana Saldaña, Associate Professor of Mexican-American Studies at the University of Texas at San Antonio, and Adán Medrano, Chef, Writer, Filmmaker, and Project Director of Encuentro. Medrano, who's based in Houston, has been a champion of Texas Mexican cuisine and history for years. His most recent documentary about the topic, Truly Texas Mexican, has won critical acclaim and several awards. Medrano says his film and events like Encuentro are creating a resurgence in interest in Texas Mexican cuisine.
1: There is indeed a strong resurgence of the interest in the Native American roots of the food that i grew up eating and hundreds and thousands of mexican-americans grew up eating it's called comida casera and that means the home cooking of mexican-american families the difference with tex-mex is unfortunately that tex-mex was uh, an easy food type it's a restaurant type it's a style of food that many people like and since the writers began to write about it and they were not mexican-american that sort of took over but it's a different cuisine They have used lots of cheese, lots of fried items, and the Mexican-American families, we don't eat like that. I'll leave it to my my friends to describe the encuentro, and that's really a description of what we eat. But in a nutshell, Norma, I'd say Mexican-American cuisine has 10,000 years of history on Texas soil. And Tex-Mex cuisine begins in the early 1900s as a copy of Comida Casera of our family.
0: And so Encuentro took place in Houston, Texas, around mid to late May, and it was a congregation. It was a meeting of Mexican-American chefs, of academics, of journalists. And it was, I'm going to say, probably a one of a kind experience and Rebel Mariposa, uh, you have been here in San Antonio and Yanaguana, as you call it, which is the indigenous name for this particular region. And you have been making food that is based from what indigenous people have been living from the region for, again, as Adán was saying, thousands of years, and you're using it in, in modern cuisine, and you took part in Encuentro. Can you talk about your experience at Encuentro and what it is that you contributed? Because
2: this was the first time that this Encuentro happened, we really didn't know what to expect, the scholars, the cooks, the chefs. So what we got asked to, you know, be part of this experience where we were going to bring a dish, we were told which part, would it be dinner, lunch, or breakfast, and I got asked to bring a breakfast food, so I decided to bring an atole because I have fond memories of my father making atole de arroz. Can you explain what an atole is for people who don't know? Yeah, uh, an atole is... It's so many different things. It can mean so many different things. But basically, it's often as a drink that is made traditionally out of maseca, out of masa, out of grind cornmeal or corn, and then mixed with some sort of uh, liquid. Sometimes it's water and piloncillo. Sometimes it's milk. It really depends on which household is serving you or what part of Mexico or even Texas or New Mexico or, or Califas is you're eating or drinking this atole. So I decided to create it out of pecan uh, milk and amaranth flower and so that's what i brought to present the encuentro was so powerful because it was these like-minded people who have been working and thinking this way with food and even though we're spread out in different parts of the house we got to come together and kind of nerd out in a way. <laughs> and also, I mean, I think like for a lot of the chefs and I, it was a way for us to also talk about the industry, the the food industry, the restaurant industry, and, you know, some of the problems within it and operating under like a late hyper society. And how do you, you know work in a business and still try to be ethical and treat your your staff right and yourself right and because you know the restaurant industry can be exhausting in a way that is exploitative not just to the staff but even to owners so it was just really therapeutic and really important to be able to not just talk about ingredients but the whole aspect of colonialism too and how it affects the food not just what we have access to but even how we're running our food spaces currently in modern day society.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's really fascinating. When people think about food, they think it's just food, but it's so much more than that. I mean, we've had programs here that focus just on tacos. We've had taco journalists here, and they know that it it is more than just the taco. It is the people who make it. It's the history behind it. It's the, the regions from which they come. There's so much that goes into the food, so much thought. And Liliana Saldana, you were one of the academics involved in this particular encuentro, encounter, and You are a Mexican-American studies professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Can you explain your contribution to Encuentro?
3: So uh, for this Encuentro, I got to talk about the dishes, each specific dish, and say a little bit about the foods, about the ingredients, where they come from, But most importantly, I got to talk about the intergenerational convivencia that happens when families prepare meals and the importance of learning in the kitchen, of learning about these recipes and the stories behind the recipes when we are preparing them in community, when we're preparing these foods with our family members, with the elders in our families, and sometimes they're the matriarchs in our families. I know in my case, it was my mother, it was my grandmother who taught me the recipes that I know today. And that I'm able to share with community. So it was an opportunity to learn from the scholars, you know, from an archaeological perspective, you know, the 10,000 years of food, but also the historical perspectives on the foods, and also the cultural perspective on foods and how we come to prepare the foods, how we come to learn about the foods, how we get to share these recipes in our communities, how they're passed down from one generation to another generation, because this is the embodied knowledge that we have in our communities. We learn about our histories through food. We learn about memory. We learn about the spirit of our families, of our communities, the spirit of our people who have been able to thrive in very adverse conditions and prepare foods that have nourished our families across generations.
0: There was a public panel discussion that took place towards the end of the Encuentro weekend, and they were showing some excerpts from Adan's film, Truly Texas Mexican. And I believe, uh, Liliana, if I heard correctly, um, you are actually going to be adding something to the curriculum of Mexican-American studies regarding
3: foodways? Yes, yes. So in fall, of 2023, I'll be inaugurating a class called Mexican-American Foodways, Recipes for Wellness, Liberation, and Justice. And it's the first course of its kind at UTSA. It's the first course of its kind within our program. So we're really, really excited to be able to create a space where students can learn about Mexican-American Foodways throughout the whole semester. So it's going to be an interdisciplinary class. I'm really excited that students will have an opportunity to go into the special collections and look at, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century recipe books, because we do have the largest Mexican cookbook collection. So I'm just really, really excited. I did get to pilot a class a couple years ago. And it's really transformative for students who don't feel grounded in preparing food. Their memories of food, of Mexican food, or comida casera, is going to their grandparents' house usually, or they get a home-cooked meal when they go home. And so, you know, this is an opportunity for them to actually talk to the elders and their families, to get to talk to the knowledge keepers, the people who preserve the recipes, who preserve the knowledge of the ancestors. And so I had a student who said, you know what, this is the first time I ever cook a pot of frijoles. And it was very transformative for the student because, you know, students are on the go. They work full time, they go to school full time, they don't often have time to cook. But food is the one area where they can feel really grounded and rooted in their identities. They feel rooted in their histories. And so this is going to be a good thing.
0: Liliana Saldaña is an associate professor in Mexican-American studies at the University of Texas at San Antonio. We're also talking today with San Antonio chef Rebel Mariposa and with chef, filmmaker, and writer Adán Medrano. We're talking about Encuentro, the Native American roots of Texas Mexican food, an event that took place last month in Houston. When we come back, Avan Medrano remembers a conversation he had with a journalist who attended the Encuentro. The journalist was taken aback by the pain behind some of the stories shared by the chefs at the event.
1: The stories are painful, and it took the chefs telling the history of their stories that made me realize that the pain of this food has led to very delicious, beautiful things.
0: Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Ten Mexican-American chefs from across Texas joined four scholars and several journalists in celebrating the indigenous foodways of South Texas and Northern Mexico. Texas-Mexican food can be traced back 15,000 years, and chefs across the state honored their ancestors with their dishes— Breakfast, lunch, and dinner showcases featured modern takes on traditional cuisines like tamales, chilaquiles, and guisados. The chefs interacted with scholars and media and shared their personal stories and their connections with the cuisine. We're talking today to San Antonio chef Rebel Mariposa with Mexican-American Studies professor Liliana Saldana and with Encuentro Project Director Adán Medrano. Medrano says the conversations held during the Encuentro weekend were transformative for all involved.
1: One of the um, editors from Dallas uh, said that this experience wasn't just in his mind, that he finally understood that Tex-Mex was not representative of the Mexican-American people of Texas. He said it was more than just this idea that he had not thought of. He said it was my body experiencing something that connected food to ancient history through actual people's memory right now. And it was joyous. It was delicious. It brought smiles. And it brought all of this theory and academic knowledge into full uh, enjoyment. He, he, He finally realized, now I know that writing about food is not talking about how fluffy the potatoes are or how creamy the gravy is those are expressions that are important to a dish. But writing about food is writing about the stories that made this food possible. And he said, what I learned today, in addition to that, is the stories are painful. And it took the chefs telling the history of their stories that made me realize that the pain of this food has led to very delicious, beautiful things. He said, that's a lot to write about. I'm going to have to go home and and really process this. That's the type of conversations that were happening. This conference was co-sponsored by the city of Houston, by Mayor Sylvester Turner's Office of Special Events. And it was funded by Texas Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And when Mayor Turner was interviewed by a Saltillo television station, one of the media reps here, he said, what is important to me is that we got... The opportunity to host this in Houston, a multicultural city that brags about multiculturalism, but this gives us a chance to celebrate the Native American roots of this food on this land. And I thought that was really very, very touching.
0: How long did it take for Encuentro to come together? I mean, I can't imagine it came together in a couple of months. It really just seems like such a broad project in which to gather so many chefs, so many academics, so many journalists. Can you talk a little bit about the process of organizing something this
1: grand? It really was grand. I think that's a very good word. The idea first was approved by the board of directors of the Texas Indigenous Food Project a year and a half before we actually held it. The first item on the agenda to do was to submit a proposal to Humanities Texas, which is, as I mentioned before, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And the reason we did that is this. It's the same reason that my books are published by an academic press. We thought this is going to be new. People will not have heard or believed that Mexican-Americans are rooted in this land. We did not come from across the river and our food does not come across the river. And so we want the stamp of approval in a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. So we submitted the grant, they approved us, we received a major grant from them. That was the first step. And in order to receive the grant, we had to name the chefs and the scholars. We named in the proposal, Dr. Liliana Saldana, and uh, we also named Chef Rebel Mariposa. And because their backgrounds are so strong, along with the others, That convinced them and the scholars at the National Endowment for the Humanities that this is something very, very special. And then it took us a year, Norma, to put it together. When we asked the city to be an advisor, they said, we want to be more than advisor. We want to be a co-sponsor. So they brought the full weight of the city and the contractors to help us. We also had a local leading Mexican-American cultural organization join in as the presenting sponsor, and their name is Mecca multicultural education and counseling through the arts. And this is why it was so successful because over 18 months, many important partners came on board and said, it's time to do this now. Dr. Mario Montaño, one of the scholars said to me as we were driving away in the car, he said, this has been historic. Nuestra gente, our people talking about nuestra comida, talking about our, our food in our own terms without a filter of media or anyone else. Everyone I think I've talked to really does agree that it was historic, but it did take a year and a half to plan. There was a lot of important notes to be played and dishes to be prepared.
0: Well, well, now that you have one under your belt. I'm sure that you've been asked this question a kajillion times by people probably within the first hour of it starting. When is the next one or is there going to be a next one?
1: I had initially proposed it as a one one of a kind. Uh, And the purpose was to bring the chefs together in order to form a bond of solidarity so that they would realize with their dishes and with helping one another to cook that they are not alone. The passion, the depth of commitment to fight colonization was shared by many other chefs across the state. And I felt this would be a movement. And after the first hour when the speaking began, That's when people said to me, this has to happen again. It's a movement. It's not just a a one-of-a-kind. That's how it happened. The idea is that when people come together like this, the voices of people whose voices have been diminished... By the way, during the Encuentro, there were many examples of how our voices have been silenced. But not anymore. I I would like to hear from both uh, Dr. Saldana and uh, Chef Rebel Mariposa about this first instance, if they share my experience, and I felt this first instance of knowing we shall no longer be silenced. When I heard Chef Rebel Mariposa speak and tell her story, when I held, heard Dr. Saldana, I was moved. I mean, I was, I was emotionally moved, almost to the point of, of teary-eyed, because I reacted so strongly to what they were saying, and the reason I think I tell myself is our voices have been suppressed for so long that they burst out like this, like a, a beautiful song. And I just said, hooray, finally. That was my feeling. I really felt that strongly, and I hope someone else did as well. Well, I'll then open the door here, <laughs> Rebel.
0: One of
2: the reasons why I've chose amaranth, amaranto, is because it's such ancient, beautiful grain that is forgotten. Most people do not know amaranth. They don't have an experience with amaranth and with amaranto. And as you begin to study it and learn more about it, part of its history is that when the Spaniards came and, and began their violent colonization of our peoples, they made amaranth illegal to grow because it was used in religious and spiritual ceremonies of our people. They would use the amaranto mixed with some agave syrup to create Little dolls, in a way, to put on their altades of the gods and goddesses that we believe in. And the Spanish, of course, wanted them to uh, be converted to Catholicism and, and in any means possible. And one way was to uh, make this, this grain, the this superfood, illegal to grow. But luckily, our ancestors and their brilliance <laughs> and genius um, saved the seeds. And it's also because it's native, it grows wild. I met a woman who's from Lubbock who can't get it out of her backyard, <laughs> you know? So, um, and, and that's part of the reason why I picked it, because it, it's it's something that more folks need to know about, more people need to remember. And when I've learned that about amaranth and amaranto, it, when I use it, I use it with such reverence. I pray over it. I think about it. I I'm, I remember with my hands and my bones and my spirit. There's just something that happens to me in the kitchen, and I preparing the atole, it took me about two days to prepare it, and so you know, that's a constant prayer of really understanding that what I'm doing here is I want to open up you know, people's hearts, I want to help them remember, because the saying I love is la cultura cura, our culture heals, people's cultures heal them, and when it gets taken away from us then we are sick. We're sick in many different forms. So we're using food and storytelling
3: to help heal ourselves and to heal our peoples and so that we can thrive again. Liliana? So I think one of the things that resonated with me the most, you know, in hearing the chef's stories was how our communities have continued to thrive in the face of adversity. And it's been through our foods. Um, I'm thinking of even my own family's history, you know, my own family's stories about, you know, my abuela on my mother's side, uh, my great-grandmother preparing a very simple atole, just masa and water, you know, no piloncillo, no cacao or chocolate, just a very simple atole. And she would prepare this every single morning. You know, it was what came from the land. She used to prepare her frijoles with joconosles or choconosles, which is the bitter prickly pear, and she would, you know, scoop out the seeds in the middle and add the, the joconosles in her beans. These were very simple recipes that nurtured her, that nourished her children, and here I am, you know, two, three generations later, we are continuing to use some of these same foods. Some of us are working on reclaiming those foods and those recipes as chef mariposa mentioned earlier you know recovering amaranth recovering tunas recovering the foods that have been a part of our millinery diet for thousands of years but in a lot of the stories that i heard i heard about the importance of these dishes being passed down from one generation to the next for example chef victoria lizondo talked about the chilaquiles that her mother would make. I grew up eating chilaquiles too. I still eat chilaquiles. Actually, the other day I made chilaquiles for dinner because it was what I had in my kitchen. I had tortillas, I had tomates, I had chile, cebolla, and I had salsa. So that's what I made for dinner. It was simple, it was easy, and it was delicious. These are the foods that you know, have been passed down that we get to now share in our communities, with community. And in sharing the foods, we get to share our stories. You know, we get to share about our ancestors and the stories that, you know, I didn't grow up with my great-grandmother. I don't remember ever meeting my great-grandmother, but I feel so connected when I can make an atole, when I can make my frijoles, and I could add joconosles into my pot of frijoles. So I think of how amazing it is to be in a space where we're learning about the foods, we're learning about the stories behind the foods, and we're getting to share this knowledge, you know, through our own perspectives, through our own lens, and in our own voice. You know, we're not waiting for others to write about us. You know, people have been writing about, quote-unquote, Tex-Mex food, and that's not our food. It's the comida casera that we eat in our homes that is the food that we eat. And and there is still that, I think, misperception in the public. You know, in Mexico, when they think of Mexican food in the United States, they think of Tex-Mex food, right? They think of burritos. They think of nachos, you know, with a lot of that melted cheese. And not the nachos that were made in El Paso on the border, right? <laughs> but the nachos that you would probably get at um, at a football game. At a football game, yes. Um <laughs> fried foods, right, excessively fried foods. But that's not the food that we eat in our homes. You know, I think of, you know, conchitas, you know, in fideo, right? Yes, you have a European influence with the pasta, but it's the tomato base and the spices that you use to create this meal that has nourished a lot of our families, particularly working-class families. You know, we always found ways to hacer la comida rendir, right, to ensure that we could feed our families with the resources that we had. And to me, I always am so grateful to, you know, the matriarchs in my family, you know, my great-grandmother, my mother, my grandmother, who were able to nourish our families and to create delicious meals with what they had. And they're survived by the land.
0: So, Rebel, I'm curious, you know, you had a restaurant. It was La Botanica, which was a vegan restaurant, which uh, most indigenous foods were vegan and until the European influence came and introduced, you know, cows and pigs, etc. When your clientele would come in for a bite or for a drink, did they often walk away with maybe a different perspective of the food they were eating because maybe they were just looking for a good vegan restaurant and they just happened to come across La Botanica
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, you're right that most of most indigenous and native peoples around the world their a lot of their diet, at least especially um here in turtle island is uh was plant based and so I grew up to in the kind of this culture of mexicana culture where it was meat heavy. And then all of a sudden, you know, I start thinking about the environment and I start going, okay, you know, I'm going to do more plant-based. And the more you research, you realize, oh, this is really how our ancestors have been eating, just eating meat every once in a while. And so, yes, I have a family cookbook that my aunts on my father's side put together. And it's like the Lopez family cookbook, 1992. And so I was in California, living in California at the time in San Diego. And I took that cookbook and I started veganizing the recipes. And it was transformative for me. And then, yes, and then I was doing that stuff and posting about it. And my family back in San Antonio was like, hey, how can I eat more vegetables? My doctor's saying I need to lower my cholesterol. My, you know, my doctor's saying I need to lose weight. And I thought, you know what? I need to get back to San Antonio and do this work. There's a lot of people in California doing this work. Let me get back to Tejas. And I came back and, and I started doing some vegan catering. And then, yes, I, was, um, I had the opportunity to open up the restaurant. And oftentimes people would be like, how can you do Mexican food? And it's where's the meat? That's not right. That's not our food. And I'm like, just try it. And, yeah, I mean, people would have these really beautiful experiences and go, oh, my gosh, I never knew I could have ceviche without fish in it. Or, you know, I never knew I could have an empanada with just black beans and, and feel satisfied. And, you know, or these salsas remind me of my grandmother's salsas. And, and like Dr. Saldani was saying, it's the spices and it's the way in which we make the food and these combinations of, of masa and, and frijoles and the epazote and these things that come together that really invoke memory and excitement and also make us feel satisfied in our bellies.
0: So, Adan, you've been researching Texas Mexican food. You've been cooking it. You've been uh, filming it for years and years now. Do you still find you learn something new when you hold an event like Encuentro or when you talk to your fellow chefs or to other academics or folks like Chef Rebel Mariposa or Liliana Saldaña Tell us how, you know, the evolution of Adán Medrano continues.
1: I'm constantly learning, and uh, the learning comes from uh, meeting people, meeting chefs and others. The Encuentro was a huge learning experience in my body because I felt I felt these stories echo. When I feel these stories, uh, Encuentro echo in en lo que dicen, I find resonance in what the stories that were told. What happens to me is I... Begin to ask new questions. What more is there? My next book is about the plant based traditions of the Texas borderlands. It's almost finished now. I, I test every recipe in my test kitchen here in Houston. And uh, I began researching uh, many Texas Mexican uh, recipes from Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, Waco, Texas, Houston. And I realized in these cookbooks how many plant based. We have a very strong classic tradition in vegetarian cooking and vegan. So Uh, That's an interest of mine now, and I constantly learn. One of the interesting things from the Encuentro is how the invisibility of our comida casera, home cooking, is no longer that invisible. It was invisible in the marketplace of publications. There are only two major publications in the state of Texas that have Mexican-American editors or chief writers. That's the Chronicle here and then San Antonio Magazine. Leslie Brenner, who was the former restaurant critic from the Dallas Morning News, wrote in a very important article that those who love Tex-Mex should really come to terms with the original sin of Tex-Mex. I love some of the Tex-Mex. I don't think it should be disparaged. It's a specific style of the comida casera that was taken over and imitated, but it's high fat, etc. But she says they have to reconcile the original sin Of Tex Mex. And the original sin was that it was born as a copy of the women chefs in San Antonio, now called Chili Queens, who made the city of San Antonio a cooking and food destination in the 1880s, 1890s. And they were so successful that the male Anglo took over and they were run out. This is a story that has a lot of complexity to it, and those who love and study Tex-Mex food need to reckon with it. So I thank Leslie Brenner for having pointed that out, and I use that as an example of what I had said before, that our invisibility is lessening. We've always been here in plain sight, but more and more non-Mexican American journalists are joining us and realizing that they need to speak the truth about this food, because when you do so, everybody... Everybody merits, everybody's food becomes more delicious. One last thing is we're invisible in the English language press. We're also invisible in Mexico City, in Mexico. So I would like to announce that Diego Salazar, who is one of the top food writers and journalists in Mexico, he's written a book about journalism and writes about the food of Mexico City, has invited the Encuentro to happen in Mexico City. And he wants to invite the top chefs, all these other famous chefs in Mexico City, to join in so they can realize that this food exists. He says, you open my eyes as a Mexican from Mexico City, a journalist. I did not know that South Texas and Northeastern Mexico had this cuisine that's so unique. And listening to the chefs, he says, I was blown away. We need to bring this to Mexico City because we Mexicans also have ignored that food. I think that was absolutely wonderful.
0: Avan Medrano, chef, writer, filmmaker, and project director of Encuentro. Medrano executive produced and wrote the documentary, Truly Texas Mexican, and is the author of the cookbooks, Don't Count the Tortillas and truly Texas Mexican. Dr. Liliana Saldana is an associate professor in Mexican-American studies at the University of Texas at San Antonio. She was one of the participants in the recent event Encuentro, the Native American Roots of Texas Mexican Food, which was held May 19th and 20th in Houston. Saldana will introduce the course Mexican-American Foodways to the UTSA curriculum in the fall. We also talked today with San Antonio chef Rebel Mariposa, an activist and artist who opened the now shuttered La Botanica restaurant. La Botanica has morphed into a culinary and wellness vegan-based company focused on empowering communities. Thanks for joining us today for Fronteras. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Marian Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Cheranga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at TPR.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.